$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Minnesota. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Shortly after 7 a.m. on May 20th, 2022, police got a 911 call about a silver Chevy Impala that was driving down the road on its rim and its back windshield smashed out. The car looked like the result of a high-speed chase on an episode of Cops. Not only did the state of the vehicle pose about 47 questions, it definitely did not belong on the road, especially at 7 a.m. on a Friday with morning rush hour about to pick up. With that call, police rushed to the area to try and locate that shell of a vehicle. Within a couple of minutes, patrol officers located the busted Impala and initiated a traffic stop near the intersection of Shoreline Drive and Bartlett Boulevard in Orno, which is a quiet little suburb of Minneapolis whose claim to fame is the birthplace of the Tonka truck. Unfortunately, though, it was about to be known for something far more sinister. As an officer approached the female driver of the vehicle, they noticed what looked like blood inside. They couldn't be sure, but the other material, as K-A-R-E called it, set off alarm bells. Having no evidence of a crime at that point, but knowing something had to have happened inside of that car, police had it towed to a secure location for processing and sent the driver on her way, a decision they would soon regret. Terrifying events are not dropping out of the sky in this toy car-loving suburb of Minnesota, but that day they were. When investigators started processing the impounded vehicle, they opened the trunk to find a body. Side note, reports said that they took the vehicle to another location, but in the body cam footage, you can see an officer move a wadded-up gray blanket, then back away and say, we got a body, and the car was on the shoulder of the road at that point. Almost immediately, the chief of police held a press conference to fill the public in on what had happened. Word was traveling fast, residents were getting terrified, and the rumor mill was not helping. The chief spoke openly to the media, and while the press conference was generally informative, it was the reporter's follow-up questions that dug out the most information. Special shout-out to Lou Raguse with KARE, who was glued to this case and is one of the best reporters I have come across in the four years of having this podcast. KARE 11 deserves endless recognition for their dedication to this case and making sure the world knows everything about it. 
Regarding the unidentified body found in the trunk, one reporter asked if there was anything indicating the person's age or gender. The chief simply stated that he just didn't know yet, which sounds like whoever it was wasn't immediately identifiable. That can be attributed to a number of different things like decomposition or manner of death, but whatever the reason was, it sounded like this was going to be an incredibly complicated and heartbreakingly gruesome case. The chief told the media that the female driver of the Silver Impala was currently in custody, but did not say that she was under arrest. At the time of the press conference, it looked like she was being held for questioning. For now, it sounds like she was just being questioned, but she wasn't the only one. A male subject was also in custody, but no one knew anything about him or where he even came from. The female driver had been the only one involved in that traffic stop, so there had to be a second location. And thanks to a reporter who kept his eyes and ears on the police activity in the area, we know that something had gone down at the Bayview Apartments just a mile east of that traffic stop. When he asked the chief if the two incidents were related, the chief confirmed that they were. Knowing there were now two locations involved in this case, the intersection and the apartment, there was a question as to why the press conference was being held in front of what looked like a Shell gas station. When asked about it, the chief stated that the gas station behind him was a key location in their investigation, explaining that the vehicle in question had been spotted there prior to the traffic stop and they'd found some kind of unspecified evidence. I think we can all agree that a gas station is generally nothing special, but through the lens of an investigation, they do tend to have cameras and dumpsters, two things that would come to be horrifyingly invaluable in this case. This investigation took 0.0 seconds to get off the ground, if you take away the part where they let the driver go. From second one, this department was absolutely flying. The chief stated that several search warrants were already being served on several different locations in the area. With everything moving at warp speed, the media was in a sprint to figure out who the driver was and that mystery second person. The two involved turned out to be a 28-year-old woman named Jalissa Thaler and a 27-year-old man. Now, Jalissa's name has been pronounced several different ways across several different media outlets, Hulissa, Jalissa, Thaler, and Thaler, but the most frequent I've seen is Jalissa Thaler, so that's how I'm going to pronounce it throughout this episode. I'm sorry if it's incorrect. Within hours, the body in the trunk was identified and who it was shattered the hearts of that community. It was six-year-old Eli Hart, a kindergartner at a local primary school and the son of Jalissa Thaler. Alongside his body, police located a shotgun. Six-year-old Eli Hart's life was anything but easy. Back in January of 2021, Bring Me News reports that Dakota County filed a CPS order which took Eli out of the care of Jalissa and into the custody of social services. It looks like he was initially removed after family reported concerns over Jalissa's alleged drug use and deteriorating mental health, though it wasn't that cut and dry. 
it looks like there were actually a few different instances attributed to his removal. The Star Tribune reported that in one particular incident, Eli locked Jalissa out of the house, and when police showed up, the home was in complete disarray. Eli reportedly had an open wound on his elbow and wasn't wearing his hearing aids, which was something he required due to a medical condition. KARE was able to later get a more detailed report of the incident, which noted that Eli was actually naked when police got there and they couldn't find a single piece of clothing for him. Eventually, the document states that they managed to locate some pajamas, but the way it was worded sounds more like those pajamas might have come from an outside source. While the Star Tribune reported that the house was an absolute mess, KARE's document states exactly what that mess entailed. Broken raw eggs all over the main floor along with other food across the floor in different levels of decay. They also found a disassembled fence on the kitchen floor, a safety risk for Eli, and the rest of the house was just in a shocking state of clutter. January of 2021 was the beginning of a long and complicated reunification attempt with Eli and his mother. Adam Duxter with WCCO shared notes from the CPS files that detailed a list of concerns after the process started. They all centered around the fact that even with her child being removed from her care, it didn't seem to motivate Jalissa to keep her head down and stay out of trouble. Granted, the trouble she got into with the law seemed to mostly be traffic-related, like speeding and using her phone while driving. It was the frequency that made it questionable. She'd been stopped twice in March, once in May, another time in June, again in July, and a sixth time in October. When 2021 turned into 2022, she was stopped again in March. The county was also concerned that Jalissa had continued a hearing that was scheduled for June relating to the theft of pharmaceuticals from her clinic. The initial reporting on that hearing was a little vague, but a later report by KARE went into a little more detail. Jalissa had been arrested for allegedly stealing pain meds and needles. The information about the clinic was the first insight into who Jalissa might be, and I wanted to know more, so I took a trip down social media lane. On her Facebook, Jalissa describes herself as an Aquarius, mommy, advocate, and feminist. She also has a tattoo of the word serenity across her collarbone and posted a photo of her standing at the bottom of a giant peace sign. Her Instagram bio goes as follows, anti-racism, pro-LGBT, protect women and children, followed by an emoji of a mother and son, urban explorer and non-urban adventure seeker, future graduate, feminist. Her username included the terms peace and serenity, two very specific things that she seems to lack. Jalissa's online presence was a stark contrast to what was going on behind the rosy lens of social media. Additional concerns listed in the paperwork from WCCO included the frequency in which Jalissa moved. KARE added some specificity there and noted she had moved four times in four months bringing her stability into question. The paperwork goes on to show that CPS was worried about Jalissa's mental health and how it was impacting Eli's. They were also concerned that she was jeopardizing Eli's relationship with his father, Tori Hart. Jalissa and Tori were not together, not even a little bit. While all documents seem to point to Jalissa being a walking red flag, it was the opposite when it came to Tori. Documents stated Tori was a stabilizing force in Eli's life. 
Even still, the CPS plans all seem to center around his reunification with Jalissa. She was even given supervised visits, and according to a piece by KARE, during one of those visits, Jalissa threw garbage at a staff member and dug her nails into the staff member's skin. During a visit a week later, they documented Jalissa staring into space, ignoring Eli while he begged her to play with him. Her lack of self-awareness into her own behavior and what appeared to be a complete lack of motivation to get her son back was a constant source of disappointment. Further documents state that in October and November of 2021, Jalissa failed to attend therapy regarding her own mental health and minimally participated in meetings with her caseworker. She also reportedly failed to complete a parenting education program after missing too many days. Regardless of everything you've heard up until this point, Jalissa was granted unsupervised visits. That's enough to make anyone rage, but according to KARE, she started to show at least the bare minimum of responsibility. And I mean bare minimum here. Jalissa was picking Eli up and dropping him back off at his foster parents' house on time. Shocking, I know. Her reliability was so unlike her that documents from KARE noted caseworkers didn't expect it to be something she would maintain, and they were right. Sure, maybe she was capable of looking at a watch and showing up on time, but what she wasn't capable of was not doing the weirdest shit, like parking in front of his foster parents' house and sitting there with binoculars. The family saw her at 3 a.m., called the police, and when they tried to confront her, she drove off. Further documents from KARE detailed an infuriating email that followed that incident. A caseworker acknowledged what had happened, adding that Jalissa had even called his school the following morning to see if he was there. If you're thinking, maybe this is the straw that breaks the camel's back and they cut Jalissa off, you would be wrong. Instead, the email stated that Jalissa would be responsible for bringing Eli to and from school the following two days and that she'd be picking him up that evening for his therapy session. Instead of pumping the brakes because Jalissa was losing her shit, ignoring all boundaries, she was essentially rewarded and his foster family had no choice but to go along with it. In December of 2021, against the objections voiced by Eli's foster parents and members of Jalissa's own family, Eli began a trial home visit with Jalissa. The Star Tribune reports that Jalissa's own father had testified against her, saying that she wasn't fit to care for herself, let alone a child. He told the outlet that he considered adopting Eli himself, but after seeing him with his father, Tori, he wanted to support Tori's drive to gain custody of his son. Jalissa's father said, Tori was the parent that Eli deserved. He is the guy you want raising your grandchild. Which is one hell of an endorsement, but it didn't seem to matter. His pleas fell on deaf ears and Tori was fighting a constant uphill battle. Jalissa made false claim after false claim about Tori, some of which resulted in protective orders. She claimed Tori had made threats, physically harmed his son, and abused drugs. But when asked to provide any evidence of anything she was claiming, she couldn't come up with any. Every single one of Jalissa's claims were looked into, and not once did they find any indication that she was telling the truth. 
In fact, according to KARE, an earlier police report documented Jalissa admitting that some of her allegations weren't true and were probably due to her mental illness. Jalissa's father told the Star Tribune, I guarantee you 100% that Tori is incapable of anything that Jalissa accused him of. He wasn't even in the state when some of the stuff supposedly happened. He had receipts showing he was in Wisconsin almost three hours away. Jalissa had shown time and time again how disinterested and unmotivated she was to be the mother Eli deserved, but it wasn't enough. He was back home with her and it wasn't going well. Eli did not thrive in her care and instead his behavior took a turn. The outlet reports that he started acting out, even becoming violent with other children, at one point pushing a child off of a slide and kicking another in the throat. That behavior was a complete 180 from the bubbly, smiley, fun-loving six-year-old boy that everyone had known Eli to be. Tori noticed the changes in Eli as well, and by March, he was emailing a caseworker that his son was showing signs of anxiety. He was having trouble sleeping, chewing on his shirt, and using baby talk. Baby talk being a key word here. The Family Services Agency of the Central West Coast lists regression to young behaviors like thumb-sucking and baby talk as a warning sign of child abuse. Documents from KARE report that when Eli's teacher asked the class to give them an example of someone who had been mean to them, the classroom went silent with Eli's example, that his mom had pushed him. He reportedly also told the school that his mom had grabbed his wrist, squeezed, and hurt him. Part of Eli's trial home visit included Jalissa being required to let Eli spend time with his father, and caseworkers knew that was going to be an issue. Eventually, it looks like a staff member was designated to be the go-between when it came time to pick Eli up and drop him off. Text messages obtained by KARE show a concerned staff member texting in part, I've never seen Eli look this way before. I can't imagine what she's putting that child through right now, and God only knows what she may have given him. The staff member went on to say how she believes Eli should have gone to Tori the previous fall, but that she unfortunately doesn't get a say in that. She texted about how she and another woman had tried to get a staff member to see what Jalissa had done and how awful she is, but that some workers are just lazy, adding, she seems to look the other way. It's sad. If you were holding out hope that maybe this would be the final straw, you would be wrong. Instead, Eli's case was recommended to be closed. A report obtained by KARE read, At the time of case closing, while there were some concerns about Jalissa's parenting, there were no protection issues that required ongoing child protection, placement, or involvement. The county will be closing the CPS case at this time. On March 11, 2022, Tori officially filed for custody of Eli, but it didn't work. 
It looks like at the time his custody papers were filed, the CPS case was still open, and apparently that couldn't be debated until Eli was out of the care of social services, but that feels like one hell of an unnecessary risk. By May 10th, 2022, it wasn't Eli's father who got custody of the adorable six-year-old boy with the wispy hair and the biggest smile you have ever seen. Instead of Tori, who had followed his case plan and passed every drug test, Eli was placed in the custody of his mother, and 10 days later, he was found dead in the trunk of her car. Within hours of finding Eli's body, Jalissa was booked into the county jail on pending charges of murder. Whether it was going to be first degree or second degree, no one knew. While everyone waited for updates, Tori's fiancé, Josie, told WCCO all about who Eli was. She remembered her future stepson as kind, loving, and that he always had a smile on his face. He loved spending time with his dad, and according to an interview she did with the Star Tribune, he loved playing with cars and had dreams of becoming a firefighter when he grew up. Eli's foster mom, a family member, said that once the courts finally allowed Eli to spend time with Tori, their bond was powerful from the start. That Tori was excited to make up for lost time and couldn't wait to teach Eli how to fish and ride his bike without training wheels. But instead of doing either of those things, Tori was now having to plan his funeral and pick out a headstone. Eli's funeral planning wound up being a legal matter in and of itself. In Minnesota, each parent gets an equal say in the planning of funeral arrangements for their child. There's no law removing that right from a parent charged with that child's murder. Jalissa had to waive her right, and a judge ordered that Tori could move forward with planning Eli's funeral without any further delays. Jalissa had her first court appearance on Monday, May 23rd, and it was there that we learned that it was second-degree murder she'd be facing, not premeditated, but intentional. She was held on a $2 million bond. KARE got a copy of her criminal complaint form, and it detailed a whole lot more of that traffic stop than anyone had known up until that point. Once Jalissa was pulled over, officers noticed a live shotgun shell and a spent casing inside the vehicle, along with what looked like a bullet hole in the back seat. Knowing it was a shotgun shell, I can only assume that the bullet hole was more like a shotgun blast, a blast that probably explained the shattered back window. For whatever reason, Jalissa was not detained during nor after this traffic stop and instead was driven back to her apartment. Once her car was impounded, the investigators found Eli's body in the trunk and they rushed back to that apartment that they had dropped her off at. Jalissa wasn't there, but it was clear that she had been, at least for a little while. KARE reports that the washing machine was running and the clothes she had been wearing during that traffic stop were inside. Thankfully, without a car, Jalissa couldn't get very far and they found her trying to leave the area on foot. Once in custody, they noticed she had blood and human tissue in her hair. While Jalissa was taken to the station for questioning, other detectives were tracking the damage her bare rim had made to the road, which thankfully wound up being a map to everywhere she had dumped evidence. Remember that gas station the press conference was held in front of? In those dumpsters, investigators found Eli's backpack streaked with blood, his homework still inside. In a photo tweeted by Lou Raguse, you can see some of Eli's classwork where he had cut and glued simple words like eyes, ponytail, and arm onto a cartoon picture of a little girl. Detectives also found a car seat in that dumpster, which looked to have been damaged by a gunshot right where a child's head would rest. 
Law enforcement believed that Eli had been strapped into his car seat completely defenseless when he was shot. The criminal complaint goes on to reference an interview with one of Jalissa's friends who said that a week before Eli's body was found, Jalissa said she wanted to learn how to shoot a gun. On March 17th, six days after Tori filed for custody of Eli, Jalissa went out and bought a shotgun. Over the next two days, she spent time at a shooting range learning how to use her new gun and would carry it to and from her apartment wrapped in a gray blanket. A gray blanket was found covering Eli's body in that trunk. That information alone makes Eli's murder sound a lot less like second degree and a lot more like first. Along with the release of Jalissa's criminal complaint came Eli's autopsy results, and they were enough to make any heart break beyond repair. KARE reports that Eli hadn't been shot just once. He had been shot as many as nine times. The sheer amount of damage that nine shotgun blasts would do to a tiny six-year-old is absolutely unfathomable and painstakingly explains why police had a hard time identifying any detail about who they had found in that trunk. For the next few months, updates on Eli's case were almost non-existent, but no one, and I mean no one, forgot about him. The city council announced that they were working to name a bridge on Shoreline Drive in his honor, the Eli Hart Memorial Bridge. Plans were also drawn up to build a playground at Surfside Park in his name, the Eli Hart Memorial Park. The plan showed a stunning, unique layout with all of the climbing and sliding you could ever want. The efforts to honor Eli meant the world to his family. Josie told 5 Eyewitness News, We're just honored that they want to do this for Eli, that they want to help heal their community. What a better thing to do than a playground. Eli loved playgrounds. I couldn't tell you how many different playgrounds we have taken him to. But playgrounds are expensive, so the fundraising began. They would need to raise $200,000. In August of 2022, Tory filed a wrongful death suit against two social services employees, claiming that the county employees who provided services to Eli were negligent. And I think we can all agree that several balls were dropped in this case. And it doesn't really make a ton of sense. Once all of this wrapped up, KARE did this incredible breakdown, revealing a ton of CPS records, text messages, emails, all of that. And there is no doubt that the caseworkers in Eli's case were beyond frustrated with Jillis's behavior and were not confident that she'd be the mother Eli deserved. What I don't understand is why with all of their documentation, he was released back into his mom's care. I've looked for any updates on this civil suit, but I haven't found any. While preparing for trial, Jalissa did what Jalissa does and refused to take part in her own competency exam, which was required to proceed since she had apparently heard voices in the past, but thankfully it was quashed a month later when she was found competent. In October of 2022, the state offered Jalissa a deal. If she pled guilty to second-degree murder, she'd be given a 40-year sentence. But it was a limited-time offer, and she only had until the end of the month to take the deal, or it was completely off the table. Her attorney warned her that if she denied it, they would likely up the ante and charge her with first-degree murder. 
Jalissa did deny the deal and instead pled not guilty. Paul Bloom from Fox 9 reported her as saying, I would never do that to my son. I want to go to trial. She got her wish, and unfortunately, it was at the expense of everyone who loved Eli having to sit through the horrifying details of what happened to him. A month shy of Jalissa's trial date, her defense filed to have her statements to police suppressed, claiming she had requested an attorney, but her interrogations had continued. We don't know what happened with that motion, but we do know what she said to police. According to KSTP, when police asked her about the blood and tissue in her car, she told them it was deer meat that she had gotten from a mystery butcher overnight. Because butchers work midnight shifts in the land of Nuh-uh. Not only was her claim of a midnight deer meat butcher run absolutely insane, but it didn't explain the bullet hole. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that she didn't buy a live deer from a midnight butcher and decide to shoot it in the back of her car. But she had a different story for that. She told police that her car had been shot up by kids with BB guns. Two weeks before Jalissa's trial was scheduled, a grand jury indicted her on first-degree murder. Her attorney told Fox 9, The only surprise in this indictment is how long it's taken the county attorney's office to get one. We must all respect the undeniable fact that right now, Miss Thaler is presumed innocent and at trial, the defense will point out the reasonable doubts that lurk in the evidence. A pretty run-of-the-mill response from her attorney. On January 30th, 2023, after more than 80 motions, jury selection began. The following information comes from the incredible reporting done by Paul Bloom with Fox 9, Fox 9 as a whole, KARE 11 as a whole, and reporter Lou Raguse from KARE, who tweeted updates live from the courtroom. Jalissa asked to be allowed to leave the courtroom when any emotional or graphic images were shown, but the judge denied it. She was going to have to sit there and look at all of the evidence of the crime that she was accused of committing. The jury, however, shared the same concerns. They were worried about having to look at Eli's autopsy photos because looking at the body of a six-year-old who had been shot up to nine times with a shotgun is something you can never unsee. But the prosecution assured them that they wouldn't have to look at his autopsy photos, though they would be seeing photos of the crime scene. The prosecution stated, We are self-editing because I don't want to see them again. They're horrid. The jury doesn't want to see them. They're as bad as I've seen in any case. The first witness to take the stand was Eli's father, Tori, who was emotional as he told the jury all about his six-year-old son, how he loved fishing, playing with toy cars, eating meatballs, and blowing bubbles. He told them how Eli had completed his world, and now the only thing he could do for his son was make sure he got the justice he deserved. Witnesses testified that they watched Jalissa with her blown-out windshield and tire on its rim, throwing items into a dumpster at a gas station along with other items into the nearby woods. The witness was so concerned with what was going on that they actually stopped and asked her if she needed any help. The witness says that Jalissa looked at her with the same look your mom would give you if she was telling you to mind your own business. Gas station surveillance showed Jalissa washing her hands in a pothole puddle. We knew in the beginning that two people had been taken into custody the day Eli's body was found, but we never learned much about person number two until the trial. It turns out it was Jalissa's boyfriend at the time, and he walked the jury through the last hours of Eli's life. 
He said that the previous night they had ordered pizza and Eli played with what he called the kitties until around 11 p.m. when they were about to play Xbox. He said that Jalissa didn't like that Eli was getting rowdy and started hitting him. He says that Eli hit her back and that's when she went to get the shotgun, took it down to the car and came back up for Eli. In surveillance footage from 11.22 p.m., you can see Eli sitting crisscross on a push cart that Jalissa was pushing through the building. The prosecution told the jury that Eli probably thought he was going for a late night adventure with his mom. Jalissa's ex-boyfriend said that after she took the shotgun down to the car and came back for Eli, he wound up falling asleep. Jalissa didn't come back until between 8 and 8.30 a.m. the next morning, and when he asked her where she had been, she said something along the lines of, I had something to do. She mentioned something about the police, but without much explanation, started a load of laundry. He says he assumed Eli wasn't with her because he was at school. He told the court that at the time they were both taken into custody, he thought Jalissa was a sweet person who had never hurt her son. Though it does seem his opinion may have changed because as he was leaving the courthouse, he yelled, I want nothing to do with that bitch. It's hard to tell where in the story a broken gate fits in, but the prosecution believes at some point after putting the shotgun and Eli into the car, Jalissa drove through a plastic gate in a local park, destroying it. And it might have been a rock within that gate that blew out Jalissa's tire. Thank goodness it did, because that damage is what made it so easy to track her movements. There was some live coverage of the trial where they talked about the shooting possibly taking place within that park, but it's not exactly clear, but it did need to be included in this episode. An insurance broker took the stand and testified that Jalissa had applied for a $250,000 life insurance policy for herself, which was denied. But it wasn't her own policy that caught the broker's attention. It was the $400,000 policy she wanted to take out on Eli. The broker let her know that their policies on children only went up to $50,000 and tried to talk her into a $20,000 policy, but Jalissa was adamant that she wanted one for no less than $400,000. The last person to testify was a detective on the case, and his testimony removed any lingering doubt as to whether or not Eli's murder was premeditated. The detective produced the following searches from Jalissa's Google history. How to keep child away from other parent with visitation. How to fake an insurance claim, car damage. How much blood can a six-year-old lose? Does a doctor's note prevent a child from parent visitation? Most powerful knockout drug. How much whiskey to give a baby? Most expensive life insurance for child. How much does life insurance pay for dead child? How to fake being home to the cops. How to keep a child home from school for a month. Child life insurance policy. Qualifying accidental deaths. Does life insurance cover drowning? How to commit crime and blame child? What length allowed to saw off shotgun barrel? Direction to gun clubs, shooting range. Direction to Shakopee Farms. Child life insurance, life insurance with no income. How life insurance investigates a death claim. Can you take out multiple policies on somebody? Most expensive life insurance policy for child. 
Her defense attempted at least one Hail Mary by saying the investigator left out searches for blood banks and the Red Cross, saying the search for a bleeding six-year-old had to do with blood donation. Unfortunately for that argument, you have to be at least 16 years old to do so. On February 8, 2023, the jury found Jalissa guilty on both counts, first-degree premeditated murder and second-degree intentional murder. She was given an automatic life sentence without the possibility of parole. When the judge asked her if she had anything to say, Jalissa cleared her throat and said, Yes, I do. I'm innocent. Fuck you all. You're garbage. She then casually scratched the side of her face with her middle finger before being led out of the courtroom to spend the rest of her miserable little shit life in a cement box. If you've never wanted to throat punch a bitch more in your entire life, you are not alone. Eli was a happy little boy who had his whole life ahead of him. He wanted nothing more than to spend time with his dad, go fishing, eat meatballs, and one day grow up to be a hero. There was no shortage of people who loved him, but there was a system that failed him. The impact Eli's death had on his community is immeasurable, and they have rallied endlessly to make sure he will never be forgotten. They are still working towards building that playground in his honor. Looking at the GoFundMe, it doesn't look like they've reached their goal, but an update on the page four months ago said that the City of Mount and the Parks Commission passed a resolution to work with them on a private-slash-public partnership. It read, To build the playground, we have initial playground renderings and we are planning multiple fundraisers for this spring and summer. Stay tuned and please keep spreading the word. The link to the playground's GoFundMe is in the show notes of this episode. After recording this, I did some more research into the Eli Hart Memorial Playground, and they're getting so close. There's an option to sponsor a bench at the park, and I'd love for the Big Mad True Crime family to come together and raise the $3,000 needed to do that. I've set up a fundraiser on my personal and the podcast Instagram and set it to $3,000. No pressure whatsoever, but I would love for us to be able to do this for Eli and his community. I love you guys so much and your hearts for the victims that we cover. For photos pertaining to this case, check out Eli's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We are officially at the end of this episode, and it is time to share a review that made my entire day. This one is from HLT Sandwich, which is an amazing username, and says, One of my favorite podcasts, my only complaint is I wish there were more episodes a week because I enjoy the podcast so much. And same, I wish I could cover all the cases all the time. I wish I was superhuman, but alas, I'm not, unfortunately. But I love you and you are my favorite person of the day. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to do something kind for me. It means the world. I hope you know how much I appreciate you. Thank you guys for your kind words and for sharing the podcast. You're the best. And okay, I'll talk to you next week. I love you. Bye.